scriptures can communicate different meetings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances, nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life. When I stumble, I will keep getting up relying on the grace and enabling power of Jesus Christ. I will stay in my covenant with him and work through my questions by study of God's word, by faith, and with the help of the Holy Ghost whose guidance I trust. I will seek his spirit every day by doing the small and simple things. This is my path of discipleship. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. So in this lesson, we have chap John chapters two through four, and there's kind of it's broken up into different smaller stories um, from the beginning of Christ's ministry. And it starts out with they're at a wedding in Cana. And Mary comes up to Jesus and is basically like, hey, we're running out of wine. And can you do something about that? <laughs> and uh, his first response is kind of like i will do i i haven't really my time hasn't come or something yeah <laughs> um my hour has not yet come right in verse four and the whole phrase is woman what have i to do with thee which in modern talk would be like a pretty harsh response it'd be like i don't, I don't know how exactly to to translate that into our modern speech but it'd be like why are you coming to me with this woman? You know, <laughs> but uh, different scholars have all explained that the the use of the word woman wasn't like a a distancing thing. It was actually the opposite. That referring to her as a woman was almost like saying my lady, or it was like a respectful way to to refer to his mother, and basically trying to say like, I what what do you want? What are you asking me to do? Because I don't know that it's my time to do this kind of thing yet. And it wasn't really a reluctance. I think what it was was like, I've done some things. I'm in the process of starting this. I don't know that I can just openly do some something like this. It's not really healing anyone. It's not really testifying of anything. It's mostly just kind of out of convenience, right? But he turns it into a symbol of something bigger. And I think that that's why this miracle occurred. It wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, we need more wine. Okay, get, fill, get some water, I'll turn it to wine. Haha, <laughs> party trick, you know? It was, okay, let's get these particular vessels, right? Which I think were, let's see, there, uh, in verse six, and there were a set, there are six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. So he used these specific water pots after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. 
and of course they are made into wine and they even the person who's partaking of it is calls the bridegroom the person who's like in charge of the party or who the party is for and is like what is this about usually people give the best at the beginning of the party and reserve the weaker stuff for later in the party when people are, have already had some and you've done the reverse so this was like a high quality wine right and the symbolism here obviously is the change that we undergo when we decide to follow the savior the change that we undergo in purification of repentance and baptism and so i think that's why this this miracle was done not simply out of convenience but to show that through christ things are made pure things are made perfect and you can even bring something that may not even resemble the end goal those of us who come in we're just normal people we have lots of flaws we're not pure in any way but when we try and when we do the steps to become purified and sanctified by him it can turn us into something much greater than we ever thought we could be and so that's kind of the lesson that i get from that is that we might be water sometimes which has no flavor or strength to it and he can turn us into something much greater than that when we're willing to follow one of the ways I've thought about this miracle may be very different than everybody else has thought of. But I thought about, you know, what if, just for a second. It's now Ted with his males pacing around. One of the ways I've thought about this miracle, which is maybe just my own personal interpretation has been if if they if they would have ran out of wine what would have occurred maybe it would have been embarrassing uh maybe you know people would have thought less of them maybe the mom would have been embarrassed you know, you know i don't know that it would have led to the family or the people are condemned and, and they're going to prison you know it just maybe wouldn't have been that great a part so and the way I, just my own take was, Christ sometimes is so, so generous. Even to bless his mother or the bridegroom or whomever's there, it had nothing to do with him. Uh, and 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 still use that opportunity to teach a lesson and to and to give us an example. That his life is such that even when he responds to someone's want, not necessarily their need, it's still a blessing and a lesson behind it, you know? That's the way I view it, just from his reaction, or even maybe even his reaction wasn't to say, mom, no, maybe it was, mom, are you sure mm -hmm. that this is important enough for you? Yes, son, it is, okay. Because I, I can think of myself when I have asked metaphorically you know symbolically the lord had turned my water into wine and it was maybe in this kind of scenario where it wasn't it wouldn't have been the end of the, of the world it was just something nice i wanted or it was something a little extra or it was something to save face or to just enjoy something more and because i i think about that where christ later on says you know where where his apostles say you know what what should we eat what you know and he's like well take no take no heed of what you shall eat you know look at the lilies of the field you know aren't they clothed and, and you know look at the sparrow does the father doesn't 
the sparrow doesn't fall from a tree that the father doesn't know about. Aren't you greater than they? You know, type of thing where he says, and I wonder, you know, sometimes maybe Mary is showing extraordinary faith coming to the Lord with something that some of us would think, oh, that's just insignificant. I'm going to borrow the Savior. And he's saying, I am gracious and generous. I'm generous <laughs> enough that even this is, if it's important to you, it's important to me. You know, is this important to you? Yes. Okay. Then let's do it. It could also have been that he's, I mean, this is still not something that he's glorifying himself because he does it. And then it's not like he goes walking through the party and is like, you like that wine? Like how I did? Yeah, I did that. <laughs> hey, that was water five minutes ago. You know, uh, he just kind of does it and lets it speak for itself. And I think that when I think about how we today should be using the power of God or or utilizing the influence of that power, we should always be doing it in the service of others. We should always be doing it to glorify God, not to be like, look how amazing I am that I can give a blessing to my family. Right? That's not that's not what it's about. Or look how incredible I am that I have this calling and I get to be in charge of this or that. No, it's you should always use it as a method to serve others and a method to glorify Heavenly Father. And that even in this simple example, you know, he could have taken credit, he could have taken credit for it and instead he just let it happen. I think that's a good way to approach it. Um, the next kind of little vignette here story that we get is um, when Jesus cleanses the temple. And this one, I feel like has been used in a lot of ways in the past to kind of justify, to kind of paint Christ as like, uh, there's time for appropriate vengeance. Like there's times when we don't tolerate evil and he didn't, and he made a whip thing and went out and kicked everybody out of the temple and set everybody straight and sometimes we just got to do that too you know i've heard it used that way and that yeah oof. i think there there are things like vengeful jesus i like because <laughs> the natural man i think can relate a lot easier to anger or or anything of the like but i like that it says a scourge of small cords meaning it wasn't like the cat of nine tails that was ripping flesh off his back, you know, right. it, it was uh, probably some uncomfortable, but I don't know that he went around memeing people. Right? right. And then, like you said, I think it's used a lot as an example of what kind of righteous justice I can, I attach to this anger I have to justify my negative action where we, we, kind of tend to use that more than the turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor, don't dig a pit for thine enemy, you know, all of these things, right? I remember reading about this, and it used to be that when you went to the temple, you brought your own doves and your own offerings, you know, but due to traveling and for the sake of convenience, they started having vendors there where you would buy the dove or the offering. And it's just another symbol that in this time with, with, with this uh, culture of uh, Law of Moses, they were, more, they, they were more driven to complete the act or check the checkbox. I brought a dove, Aaron Sandler, not the whole journey of it, 
which the whole journey of it would be to raise it or to find it or and then bring it to the temple. And, and yes, it's going to be a hassle, but it felt like everything had moved to be more convenient. And like he said, it was it became a house of merchandise. It became a business. It, it detracted completely from the whole point of you have your best of or your purest lamb or, or you know, you, you have that which represents the best you have to bring to the Lord as a sacrifice, meaning if you could, you would not sacrifice this. You know, that's what a sacrifice means. It's, if, if it's dear to you, it's innocent, it's unblemished, it's, it's unspotted. And it was all supposed to guide us to feel like that about the Savior, him being unblemished. And, you know, and, but then it became kind of their mini, mini mall, you know, the mini mall at the temple, right? Like just uh, a bunch of merchandise and, and money changers. And, and the whole point of it was lost. Yeah, um, there's a a quote from Huntsman in the book Reflections on the Saviors last week, and it says pilgrims traveling from great distances often wouldn't would not have been able to bring their own animals for sacrifice, and would have needed to change foreign currency for coins acceptable for temple offerings. Because the temple leadership in this period was notoriously corrupt, the Savior's rebuke may have been directed in part at them for allowing and likely profiting from these activities. So I think about that, and it's like, not only are we just kind of getting more interested in making the sacrifice convenient and, you know, oh, we don't need to bring and raise an animal. We'll just get one when we get there, you know. But then it's also the people in charge who are kind of facilitating all of this, who are allowing this to develop into this, may also be taking a cut or profiting from these activities. That, I think, was almost more offensive to the Savior than the sale of a dove, you know. That, I think, was like, you're using this place for your own benefit, financial benefit. You're, that's, that's priestcraft, you know? You're using the, the need for sacrifice and the need for certain rules to be followed, and you're taking advantage of that for your own benefit. And that, that makes me mad, you know? <laughs> like, that I can understand how he might be like, this ends today. And then rebuking the people everyone would have understood that that was by extension a rebuke of those in charge, allowing it to happen. Kicking it all out, all of these merchants was a way of saying, those of you who are in charge are dropping the ball. You're shirking your duties here. And then calling it his father's house, not the father's house. He's also stating, you know, this is by, by my authority as the son of God, I am doing this. Not just I'm, I'm going to, I wish it was me getting profit, you know, or something like that. So I'm going to break it down and build it up for me. No, it was in my father's house. This won't continue that kind of idea and trying to apply that to the way that we do things. I think when we, we obviously don't offer sacrifices like that anymore, but do we find ways to, to kind of circumvent or trying to fast track our spiritual processes are there things that we do to kind of check a box are there things that we kind of do when we go to the temple are we doing it seeking spiritual guidance seeking uh, a closeness with our heavenly father or are we doing it just because oh, i haven't been in a while and i just want to check a box granted going under any kind of circumstances is better than not going at all but trying to go with the right attitude and with the right purpose in mind I think is really important and then 
being, I don't know, I feel like there's kind of a cottage industry out there of members of the church that kind of use the church sometimes as a way to gain attention or fame or whatever. And that, that really irks me. I mean, <laughs> I know that there's a lot of good stuff that they do also. And so that I can't, you know, I'm in no position to condemn that by any means, but at the same time, it, it really kind of rubs me the wrong way when individuals are using the gospel for profit. True that. You know, the, <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking about the same thing, you know, and, you know, the, the funny thing about us is it doesn't take much for our pride to become uh, enabled or activated. Uh, and then we start placing ourselves in where we shouldn't be. You know? Like, for example, with this podcast, at no point should this replace your study of the scriptures, you know? <laughs> yeah. And at no point, this is just an, an extra thing, you know? If it adds value to you, great. If it doesn't, great. But, you know, if we were to start, uh, let's have a membership, or let's have this advertiser, let's have this, and, and start consuming our lives. And and it's like, no, there, there's an order of things. And... And one of the things that I, that the one of the overarching criticisms of the Jews in the New Testament is, is they clinged to things that made them feel exclusive, that made them feel safe, that made them feel better than others, at the expense of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the law of Moses was not to blame. The law of Moses, there are many individuals who were righteous, who used it correctly, who it did lead them to the Savior. And I think when we see the Pharisees and Sadducees and the teachers of the law here, they get irked by Jesus and his actions and get offended by him. They're offended because they know that he's right. They're offended because they try to trip them with, with their cunning words and their, and their, and their traditions and their counsels. And he supersedes all of that. And just, you know, with his examples and his parables, they cannot withstand the fact that he's speaking the truth. And they know it because they purposely have designed these systems to take advantage of people and others or to just gratify their pride. I find like a very similar thing that Alma runs across with, with the people that were worshiping the Ramiumptum, you know? It was kind of a very similar tone. We're so grateful that we're better than our brethren. You know, they would get up there and thank you for giving us the truth and and not others. You know, it was like an exclusive thing. And and, and to which Alma said, this is like the most abominable thing unto God, you know, because they're now they're making a mockery. They're using the gospel to to just punch down on others, you know. Isn't that kind of the same vibe that we get sometimes when people are like, we thank thee that we're in this valley or that we're we're in Utah or that we're in the church when other people aren't, that we have the truth and they don't. You know, isn't that the same type of vibe as, I mean, I hear stuff like that. Like, I, we're so blessed to have been born in the United States of America, the greatest country on earth. You know, and it's like, you can have patriotism, but don't attribute your presence here as being some sort of confirmation of a superiority over others 
Yeah. It, and it don't, just... don't, don't attribute your presence or, or whatever in the Salt Lake Valley or Utah Valley or whatever as being some sort of indicator that you are in a better station than someone else. It's a very slippery slope to go from, it's almost like a prideful gratitude, yeah. not a sincere gratitude, a prideful gratitude that is based on comparisons. And, and then that leads to, I was destined to be who I am. And so other people are destined to suffer the way they suffer. Right. And then that leads to theories about the pre-earth life theories about you know things fence sitters all of these weird theor theaters <laughs> that can theories that can be out there right? right and then we have one thing that helped me com combat these feelings when i've had them is jacob five which is the allegory of the olive tree uh where he talks about the lord planning people in different situations and him knowing that some in that were given all the good chances they didn't give forth fruit and those that were put in the worst situations gave forth much fruit and how he would graft them and he would give and unto all is given the opportunity to give fruit but sometimes those that are in the best situations don't give forth good fruit you know and and um and this is true of you could look at it you know, social economically, you can look at it just in our within our families. You know, everyone has hurts, trials, and things that are unique to them. That's why the savior is the remedy, the one that knows all and has experienced all and has gone through the atonement. So he could, like in the Book of Mormon, sucker and care and nourish and help his people, right? we need to be careful that we don't place ourselves in a scenario where we start feeling like we can justify or judge the righteousness and the comeuppings that everybody gets where king benjamin in the book of mormon gives us a perfect example where he tells us you are special but even as special as you are you will always be in his debt so so just remember that you know and so and, and the closer we get to the Savior, the more aware we are of our shortcomings. But it's not an awareness that leads us to to be self-martyrs or to think, oh, I'm just, I'm just the worst. The Lord always gives us confidence, but it's the right kind of confidence. And it's not a confidence based on some hierarchy of social status compared to someone else. Right. It's a confidence to know, I know where I was yesterday, and I know where my heart has been. And I'm so grateful that my heart is a little bit better. And I'm hopeful that my heart can be even better in the future. You know, and that is the byproduct of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a mighty change of heart. And that is a wonderful thing. And it fills people with joy and happiness. And it can lead you to feel I am so grateful for the Lord and for his gospel. But it's because of my heart, because I know where it's been and where it can be. It's not because I was born here. I had this and I have more than someone else. And. And, and there's several parables we'll get into later on where the Lord will use quantities to teach things, talents and other things, widow's mites, you know, things like this, where he says his measurement of these quantities isn't like ours, that it's a comparison. Right. And then he, he, he tries to teach us about that principle in the parable of the laborers, where it's quantity of time or quantity of service or 
quantity of being here as opposed to someone else not being present in the last poll or whatever. Any, and then those that have been here longer feel like they've been cheated. I should have gotten extra pay. I shouldn't I be ahead of someone else? Shouldn't? And he's like, you're missing the point. You know? anyway. Well, and then you look at in his time that he's on the earth during his ministry, who are the people who are the most established, who are most aware of the gospel, who um, want to feel exclusive or special? That's the Pharisees. And we really need to be careful that we don't fall into the same pitfalls they fell into of feeling so self-assured about our status or whatever that we feel like, well, we have it figured out and everyone else around us, they're, they're the ones struggling. So we don't really need this. When he was saying to them, you're the ones who are the worst offenders. You're the ones who should know much better than this. You're the ones who should be adhering to my words more than anyone else. And just like going over that over and over and over again with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, basically telling them like of everyone, y'all should be aware of me more than anyone else. Yet you're the ones that are constantly questioning and trying to push me away as being uh, a fraud or a charlatan or whatever and he's like i'm i'm here to to check all of you you know <laughs> and every time i see that i always have to think like what how would i be would i be one of those saying like who is this guy you know come in here and tell us how to run our church or would i be like oh man this is him i think that that's that's mainly those interactions between them that's what i get out of those um and it's kind of interesting because we, we see an example of that in the the last part of chapter 2 when he's talking about the temple. And he says in verse 19, well, in verse 18, they said, Then answered the Jews, said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou dost these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this, was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body, and therefore he was risen from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus, which Jesus had said. So he's talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. Something that hasn't happened yet, obviously, but he's alluding to the fact that it will. And his, his temple that he's referring to is his body. But because they're taking everything so literally, they don't understand, and they think that he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And they're like, okay, you're telling us that it took 46 years to build this, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Like, the people who should get the reference the most, the most learned, studied people who should be understanding what he's referencing the most, don't get it. They don't see what he's talking about. They just want to catch him in some kind of technicality, right? And so they're, they're refuting everything he's saying. And those that are supposedly less learned, these fishermen that he went and found off the side of the road, who were set aside, preordained, and called to be apostles and disciples, they understood. And they were like, ah, you talked about this before. That, that was the part that stuck out to me was verse 22, where he said, his disciples remember that he had said this unto them. And they believed. So it was when he had risen from the dead. So it was a long time later. Yeah, but the disciples recalled this this interaction and thought that's what he meant, you know. Yeah. So I I see two things. I don't know. Maybe I just this is just how my brain. So <laughs> bear with me. 
I see the Jews that he's talking to and that are questioning the temple and uh, what are you going to do? And they're taking it literal. And then I see his disciples. And the disciples didn't understand it as well. But something about them and their preparation and their agency led them to continue to tarry with Jesus. And the day came when they understood it. These other non-believers asked the same. They did not understand, but it led them to get further from Christ and seek to kill him, basically. You know, you know, and 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 they both were given kind of the same situation. And so, I like this as an example of there are questions, there are things that we don't understand at the time, but we will understand. It's not a requisite. It wasn't a requisite for those disciples. And who's writing this? John, one of his apostles, who did not understand at the time. He, he, and so, so when we look at ourselves, either in our callings, like, I'm not good at this calling. Therefore, I should leave. I should not do this. What exactly, like, no, you stay with it. And in time, you'll understand. Or I have a answer, like, I heard this quote, or this, issue with church history or anything that bothers me and I don't get it. And you can take the one road where it's you can focus about the literal, you can you it's easy to see how the Jews when it's presented to us, it's easy to see how the Jews did not understand what he was talking to us. And to us it's so clear. But if we were there, we may not have understood as well. Right. You know? But what path do we take? Do we stay with the master? And have faith because there's plenty of other evidence that Jesus is the Christ. But sometimes people take one thing they don't understand, or two or three or four things, and they say, Well, because I don't understand these, then he must not be the Christ, or the gospel's not true for me. Right? And we're and, and that's why you know this selectivism that we use, and we think that it must all be understood now. Take someone like John, John the beloved, the one that loved the Savior the most, or claims to have, right? He didn't understand, and it wasn't until later that he, you know, understood. And and so it's okay when that happens to us, you know. Sometimes we don't understand something, but there's enough to go on. There's other things, and it's a relationship. You don't you imagine someone you have a relationship with now, your spouse, your children, your friend, dog, whoever, right? You may not understand each other and you're not meant to understand each other 100% right away. That only happens in Hallmark movies and Hallmark movies are faker than <laughs> anything, right? And and it's a process of learning to understand one another. And as you understand one another, you grow and so on. Well, imagine the savior, the creator of the universe, the literal son of God and a member of the Godhead. He's teaching us something we don't understand, and we just say, "Okay, I'll just I'll just go off on my own then, or I'll just I'll just give up on this." It's I don't know. It maybe I'm just getting too caught up in this example, but I just like to think about there were always two audiences when Jesus is talking. There's his disciples and the believers, and those that believe on their words, and and those and those that choose to say this must then not be true. The, the earth was created in seven days. Okay, I'm going to take that literal. <laughs> it must not be true. All the animals were in the ark. 
oh, it's only seven cubits by one cubit. That's only three <laughs> feet, and there's no way an elephant couldn't do this. And how are they gonna? Man? No, we don't know. But what the Lord is trying to say is there was a method to preserve things. You know, this happened, that happened. You know, and 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 we just we take this road and we just say, oh, it must not be true. I'm, I'm just gonna go. Yeah, well, I think the the last three verses of that chapter also illustrate the another aspect of that. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the, in the feast day, many believed in his name, and they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew that he knew what was in man. And it's interesting that it says he did not commit himself unto them. There's a, a quote by Brown in Gospel According to John. He said, here at Jerusalem, there is a willingness to see the sign and be convinced by it. But all that is seen through the sign is that Jesus is a wonder worker. And the idea is that there were people that were following just because they wanted to see the amazing things he was doing. But they were kind of missing the point of that. There were followers that wanted signs and symbols and, and that they would follow as long as that was happening. And as soon as it wasn't, they weren't invested in the reason behind the signs and miracles. They didn't understand what was the point of all of that. It was just like, oh, I want to see him cast out a devil or I want to see him heal someone, you know? And it's like, I think a lot of times we fall into that, that as well, where it's like, just give me a sign that I can know something is true. Just give me a sign that I'm doing the right thing. Just give me a sign that I'm on the right track. And it's like, we can't base a testimony off of signs. We can't base a testimony off of miracle after miracle after miracle. Sometimes we go through a dry spell of miracles in our lives where we don't get, you know, the miraculous result that we're looking for. Sometimes it's just being obedient, just following through. It's long suffering. It's enduring to the end. And it's not just something we can say, well, I'm here for the show. What about when the show is on break or what about when the show is not as uh, enticing as you thought it would be. And are you going to fall away at that point? And I think that's what it's saying, is that Jesus knew that there was a certain portion of the people following that were only following for the show. They weren't following because they actually had a testimony of what he was and what he was doing. No, I like that a lot, because I, I sometimes think, you know, what would it take to have undisputable proof? And... I can use some crazy examples. It's like, oh, I want to know that God lives or whatever. Okay. Uh, do you want to see an angel? How many people will be like, yes, I do. <laughs> okay. He shows up. Okay. What is he? Glowing off the ground. How long will that last? To what will you still have doubt? What kind of what kind of proof? Uh, shoot a lightning bolt and strike that tree. Okay, he does it. Okay. How long will that last? Yeah. It won't last long. Our, well, you, saw, you saw it with Nephi and his brothers. How many times did they see an angel? How many times it was the Liahona not working and then it was? How many times did he rebuke them and they were like, okay, yeah, oh my gosh, I felt the power of God. Now I know for a surety that this that you are called. And then like two chapters later, they're tying him up to kill him again. And it's like, how obvious is it that that is not what we should base ourselves on? That these signs and these powerful things while they do testify of God, if that's all we're going off of, that's not enough. It's not enough. It's it's what well, we should um, 
strive for is the spirit, the Holy Ghost, the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. And our covenants that we make enable us to have the testimony and the affirmation of our memories, our feelings, and the witnesses that we've had. And that does last. And there comes a point where we retain our remission of our sins and we retain a renewal of our testimony by continuing to sow, plant, uh, nurture the garden of our testimony. And that's how you retain that witness. And, and, it, and, and it's a process and we have to, we have to continuously plant and, and the, the seed and nurture it. And we nurture it by studying our scriptures, by thinking about the gospel, by remembering the Lord and, and weekly, you know, taking the sacrament and striving to remember him. And that means that we take his life and his examples and we try to apply them to our lives. And then we realize that this Christ isn't a historical figure of long ago. He's an active figure now in our lives. And we can feel his presence. We can feel his spirit and the testimony. We can feel it when others bear witness. We can feel it when we love our family. We can feel it with, we're filled with hope that moves our agency to do things. Even when sometimes things feel hopeless, you know, the Lord will fill us with a desire to use that agency to move ourselves, to get a little bit closer. It doesn't mean that problems go away. It doesn't mean that we don't have doubt sometimes. It doesn't mean that we don't get depressed, that we don't get sad. But it feels, it, it does mean that the Lord will always help us get through it. And that is a more constant witness than a one-time great event. These one-time great events. Because imagine when you were a kid and you wanted that one thing. Imagine that one thing you wanted the most and it would have changed your life. Can you remember that one thing? Do you have it now? <laughs> you know? Do you remember? Does that feeling carry you now to, to, to have endless happiness and joy? No, we thirst again. And that's why the Lord is saying, with me, you will not thirst because I'm going to show you a process by which you'll continuously learn, you'll continuously apply your agency, and you'll over, continuously overcome doubts and things and, and feel a reaffirmation of your purpose, your lineage as a son and daughter of God, and the divine destiny that you have and the reason to be on this earth. Right. And and if and if we if we do it the Lord's way and we follow our prophets and we take advantage of all the tools around us and we try to stay on the covenant path and we do all those things, then we will have that sure peace and witness of the Savior, which also means that we don't know all how it all what's going to happen tomorrow. We still have to live with uncertainty. We still have to exercise faith, but we now have a method by which we are in a partnership with Him where we can overcome things. And that, that begins to be an unshakable faith as we do it and do it. It just becomes a better and better relationship. Well, and he explains two important principles of that when he talks to Nicodemus and when he talks to the woman at the well. Like you were saying, with Nicodemus, he's basically saying, listen, unless you are reborn, you, you will not inherit heaven, right? He's telling him in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he's basically telling him, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, until you recognize the need for a spiritual rebirth and a, and a dedication to 
achieving that uh, kingdom of heaven, you, you, you won't get there. And Nicodemus obviously is kind of puzzled by this and asking him a little, some follow-up questions about, you know, how does this work again, this rebirth thing? But he's, he's teaching him and by extension, all of us, a very important principle that in order for your discipleship to mean something more than just looking after the show or trying to follow these incredible signs and, and symbols or whatever, you have to understand that it means a change in you. And it means a change in your priorities and your principles and your in your goals and the way you view those around you and the way that you view the world. And of course, baptism and confirmation. And it's funny because I think later on they asked somebody, they asked John the Baptist about, you know, Jesus is having people be baptized as well. Like, what about you? What about your role in all of this? And he very humbly in verse 30 of John 3 says, he must increase and I must, but I must decrease. And it's not him saying like, oh, I guess I'm getting put out to pasture. You know, it's, I, I, this is the purpose I've been doing this all along was to prepare the way for him. And very humbly basically saying, it's time for me well, to, to pass the baton, you know. He gives you an insight into their thinking. Their thinking was there's a limited supply of followership. Right. And, and those followers equal your social clout, you know. How can, how can you be okay with him taking your people, you know. Yeah. How, how can you be okay with that? And he's kind of like, you guys don't even understand what this is all about. You're, you're like, for I came to to give, to to help people guide him. And and if you liken it a little bit to the law of Moses and the law of of um, of um, the gospel law, it's kind of the same thing. People were still clinging on to that, and it's like, no, that was preparatory so you would accept the Savior and recognize him. You know, and lead you to. Had... John had this pivotal role of being the beginning of that transition. And he even says in verse 28, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, that I am sent before him. He's, he's saying like, I've been saying this all along. This should not be surprising to you. I am not the Christ. I'm preparing the way for him. That's him. So then, then he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Like it's time now for him to be the one that you follow. And what I've been teaching all along, while it has been true, it's just been the way to help you transition to the actual Christ. So I have no, I, I'm not going to be fighting for followers, you know, like at this point, it's time for all of you maybe to go and listen to him, you know, and that's just, like you said, they, they are thinking like social status, they're thinking influence, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees did. And they're trying to illustrate that's not what this is about. This is about understanding this transition from an old law to a new law, from the law of Moses to the law of God, what we would have going forward. Well, in it's in I think about that process, and it's not something that is gone. I hmm. think we can apply those principles in our life. Like, how can I approach my gospel learning in a similar way? Well, be grateful for what I do have and understand, and then be okay that, be open that that will lead you to something greater. But sometimes we cling to what we know, almost like 
like the man who buries his talents because he didn't want to lose them. And the Lord is saying, everything I have that is of great worth cannot be lost except if you don't take advantage of it. And we try to think of it as, well, I'm going to make it exclusive. I'm going to bury it or I'm not going to accept more. And it's kind of what he's telling Nicodemus about the being born again. Like, are we, and Nicodemus is so confused by this principle that he takes it literal. He says, well, can a grown man enter the womb again? Like, <laughs> and and I don't know that he was being facetious or 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 trying to to be too literal, but but I think he was genuinely like, what do you mean born again? And I think what the Savior is telling him and telling all of us is consider the way you are. Can you be open to the idea that you can be totally different, feel different things? And I think that's where sometimes we we fail to grasp that the the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that there are things I do not feel and believe. But as I have said, I am open to the idea and the experience that will help me change these beliefs I hold. And as I am genuinely open to it, in time I find that, wow, I now feel and believe something I never have felt before. And my heart changes and I'm filled with gratitude and love for the Savior. But but it's a process and it's part of like what Elder Bender talks about being meek. How meekness is actually a principle of power, it's not a principle of weakness. When we submit ourselves to the will of God, we can be honest and say, I don't have a testimony of this principle of the gospel, but I'm hopeful and have faith that one day I will. And if we take that attitude, we will have a lot more success resolving those concerns than if we say, if this is not true, then that's not true, then this is not true, and I'm out of here. The other principle of this is what he, he teaches to the Samaritan woman at the well, and that is that when you are born again and when you really take this gospel it all of that thirsting for for something more that you experience uh, will be fulfilled and once again he kind of uses that figurative expression of you know here we are at a well and the the water that you drink of from me will make you never thirst again and she's kind of like wait what but she understands eventually that what he's what he's meaning is that there's something more to this life than just what you've had so far and i think in in many ways everyone in the world even today is trying to fill their life with happiness and with satisfaction and with and they, they are looking in all the places they can Members of the church, non-members, we're all trying to to find out what it is that will quench that that desire for something more. And the fact of the matter is, it comes from the gospel, and it always has, and it always will. And we can find, like you said about earlier, about you know when you were a kid, you wanted something, and you thought, if I can just have this toy or this whatever, my life will be complete, it'll be fulfilled. Everybody has. I remember <laughs> in like middle school, it was yo-yos. All these kids had all these fancy yo-yos, and it was like, I don't have one, and all I need to do is do whatever it takes to get one, and then I will be fulfilled as a person. 
and I got one eventually and it was like I'm so cool for like six months and then there was something else and a lot of times we we chase things like that we chase things that will give us this momentary or temporary satisfaction in our lives every you know in his in his example water and food and all of that they satisfy us for a short period of time but our body always goes back to needing it again or needing something different even if you ate the same thing for every meal every single day after a while you'd be like i just want variety right and so it's it's never enough and what he's saying is in the gospel when you follow the gospel you are fulfilled and it is enough and when you start partaking of that you start to see how much there is and that you'll never thirst again and that you'll never hunger again and he, I, I really like his use of that example especially in that moment if you talk about you know teaching style that he's there at a well and he uses that example as a way to show this person this common person right that's the other thing about this whole example is that she wasn't the queen of the samaritans she wasn't you know any she was just a person at the well at the time and he decided this is the right person to teach this principle to and it's also the right person to for one of the first times ever talk about how i am the christ and she'll share this message with others and bring others i don't know there's just a lot about that interaction that i think is incredibly important to our understanding of what the savior wants for us i really like that story of the woman at the well and especially because it's interesting where he presents to her kind of this if you knew who i was you would ask me give me this water so i'd never drink again and uh and then and then she says well yeah 15 the woman saved him sir give me this water he says go call thy husband hither she says i don't have a husband and he, he says that's true because you've had five husbands and the guy you're with now is not your husband and then she says something, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And then she talks about, and then they talk a little bit about that. It, it seems like the, she, the Pharisees had almost like kind of a different religion that was trying to worship, but it wasn't allowed to be the same as the Jews, you know? But they had some of the same traditions. They believed in Jacob. I, I would love to know a lot more about that, a lot, a lot more about how these different almost sects of religious beliefs were in that time. Because in verse 23, where he says, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Because they just got done talking about kind of restrictive places you know our fathers worshiped him in the mountain and in jerusalem and and then there was like these beliefs that you could only worship god in certain ways in certain places or certain people which might have been a an, an unintended or a bad outcome of the way that they applied the law of moses hmm. you know yeah. and and one of the things i believe that was very troublesome to to the established Pharisees and the rulers of the day was that Christ didn't differentiate much between the Gentiles and the Jews. The only differentiation I've noticed is that he'll condemn the Jews a lot more <laughs> because they should have known better, yeah. you know? 
And then when his disciples get sent throughout the entire world, and it's not just baptize the Jews, baptize everybody, bring them to, to God and to the knowledge. I think a lot about that because the history of Christianity always seems very exclusive and very much tied to a specific geographical region or a specific culture, you know? And although we can see through these records, through these scriptures, why that is, because it was kind of their, that's how they misapplied it to the gospel. And then you start to see what the Book of Mormon teaches us. God has no respecter of persons, you know? He, he invites all to come to Christ. And then he even goes in, as far as in the Book of Mormon to explain who's the favorite people of the Lord? Those who keep his commandments. Um, keep the commandments and you'll prosper in the land. These principles that are given, that I believe were given to everybody, but through corruption and through apostasy and other things, it started to become, religion started to become a mechanism by which you rule others and, and gain your own riches and fame and gratify your own pride, which is probably why Christ was so offensive and unrecognizable when he came. I don't know. Maybe it's just a small, small example of something we can take within us to know that the, the, the experiences and the things I value about the gospel, do I value them because they, on this column, make me feel exclusive, gratify my pride, I'm glad that I'm better than somebody else, the world's going to burn, I don't want to burn, I'd rather other people burn, <laughs> or do I follow because I love the Savior, I feel a mighty change of heart, I bring to him a, a true sacrifice, contract heartbroken spirit, you know, and am I out to help everyone come to Christ? Yeah. And it's not pick personality A versus personality B. It's that's all intermingled in our lives. And it's a constant struggle to to refine ourselves and to win and over the natural man and to submit ourselves to the will of the Father just like Christ did. Yeah, I, kind of along that, I want to backtrack a little bit to John, um, and starting in verse 316, which is probably one of the most read scriptures in the Bible ever, saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believed on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is not condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And all of that tying together, I think we see the the mercy that our Heavenly Father has to send his only begotten son to sacrifice him for us. And then all he asks is that we go to the light of the gospel and that we pursue that and that we leave these little dark corners aside. And um, there's a quote by, by Christensen in Becoming Children of Light 
He says over the years we've adopted as part of our regular family dialogue that simple penetrating question. Do you see any light in that? We ask this question frequently as we seek after things that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, or as we are bombarded with worldly influences. Simply by being on guard and by using this somewhat obvious filter, we've learned that it's quite easy to differentiate between what is light and what is dark, between things that inspire us and bring us closer to the spirit and things that do not. And I think as we as we think about being reborn, as we think about partaking of water that will never cause us to thirst again, all of these kind of metaphors for following the gospel, it comes down to that. Are you seeking after the light of Christ and becoming children of light? Are you seeking after his words and following his teachings and, and really trying to find the things that will be beneficial to you? Or are you trying to find the technicalities like a lot of times the Pharisees and Sadducees did? Well, it doesn't explicitly say in the First Strength of Youth pamphlet that we shouldn't get tattoos. So I guess we can now, right? Uh, it doesn't explicitly say in the scriptures that this or this or that, or in the word of wisdom, it doesn't talk about certain things, so they must be okay. You know, it's like, okay, well, do you, is there light in that? Do you, do you find that there's light or are you kind of just trying to hang on to some of the darkness, right? <laughs> you allowing some of that to creep in. Obviously, once we've been reborn, once we've had baptism and confirmation, once we've started drinking this water that will never make us thirst again, uh, then it's trying to stay on top of that. And it's the enduring to the end part, which is a lot more than a complacency, a lot more than just waiting till it's over. It's constantly seeking after that light, further light and knowledge right, that we want to obtain. In our relationship with the Savior, he looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how he chose his apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow him, and I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, hope, and charity. The commandments and covenants he offers you are not tests to control you. They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you.